0: Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle-based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in His image to reflect His glory and grace. Advent. Week four. Talking about joy uh, this week. To turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. That's where we will be to continue in our series through John. Which we will be in uh, to Easter. Uh, But we have uh, marched through John 1 for this Advent season. And so uh, as we're wrapping up and as you're turning there, I want to make a distinction that if you've ever heard a sermon on joy, you have definitely heard this distinction. And it's the distinction between joy and happiness, right? And oftentimes what we hear is, well, joy is constant. Happiness is conditional on what's going on around you. And I think that that's actually not true. Um, They are both conditional, joy and happiness are both conditional, but they're conditioned on different things, right? They're dependent upon different things. Happiness is largely dependent upon what's happening around you, kind of at a horizontal level, the things and people and events and stuff that's happening in your life on kind of a moment-by-moment basis, where the biblical vision for joy is based on things that are constant, things that never change. And so the degree to which we find happiness is the degree to which the things around us that are largely out of our control um, are are good. That's that's how we have and find happiness. Um, The degree to which we find joy in our life is the degree to which we have kind of built our heart and built our existence and built our kind of orientation to the world on more foundational things that never change. So as we seek joy in our life, and I think we ought to seek joy in our life, and, and, and not just happiness, um, there are some things that never change that we ought to then build our lives on so that we can constantly be experiencing the joy that, if we remember a couple weeks ago, uh, the Apostle Paul actually commands that we rejoice always. Now, we, we can only do that, we can only kind of always rejoice if joy is, in fact, built on things that never change. Right, and so we're going to look at three of those things tonight in John chapter one. It's always three. That's just a rule in the Bible. John chapter one, verse fourteen, it says, "The Word became flesh and dwelt among us." And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, John has been building these themes throughout this first chapter. This is the prologue to John's gospel, these first 18 verses, and he's building out a bunch of these themes. And so if you remember, very first week, John 1 1 says, in the beginning was the word, that word logos in the Greek, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. and The darkness has not overcome it. So John, in that one paragraph that some commentators have said, uh, verses 1 and 2, is like the perfect sentence, uh, that he establishes so much about what's going to kind of play out in the rest of the gospel. So he says, in the beginning was the word. Now, in just that phrase... John is tying together multiple threads here, right? So in the beginning makes everyone who has read the Old Testament think of Genesis chapter one, verse one, that starts in the beginning, right? So he's establishing a timeline here by saying, okay, we're gonna gonna start this story at the very beginning of the beginning of the beginning. And he says, in the beginning was the word, Right? And so this word, logos, is kind of tying together uh, uh, Greek philosophy. So the Stoics considered the logos the kind of primary animating principle of the universe. Okay? So simply by saying, in the beginning was the word, he said, okay, you Jews who would understand that reference of in the beginning and you Greeks who have oriented your life around this idea of the logos, that there is some central truth to the universe, I'm telling you you're on the same page. Like what what you've been seeking in the Logos, the Jews have been following since the beginning. So he ties those two ideas together and then continuing says, and the word was with God so that there's relationship between the Logos and Yahweh, relationship relationship between the Logos and the God of the Old Testament, and the word was God. So not only is there relationship, but there's sameness. And then through that Logos, we see creation, that all things were made through the Logos and that in him was life, in union, in relationship with him is life, and that life was the light of men. And so John's building out these ideas about the word, the Logos, the life, and the light, and all of these things that are kind of now wrapping up in the end of this prologue. So back to verse 14. He says, and this word that we've been talking about this whole time, actually became flesh and dwelt among us. And this word dwelt is the idea of tabernacling, which would again been another kind of key to the Jewish readers uh, of his gospel right? And so if you remember your Old Testament history, whenever the people of Israel were either wandering or traveling, whatever the case may be, and did not have the temple, the kind of more permanent presence of God, they would carry around this tent with them that was called the tabernacle. And so whenever they would stop, they'd literally pitch the tent that was called the tabernacle. And there in the kind of center of the tabernacle would be the presence of God, That was always with them. And so, John here is saying, now I'm going to tie this thing back together again and go, okay, this Greek word for logos, this primary animating principle of the universe, has tabernacled with us, took on flesh, and dwelt among us. Now, this is um, kind of a remarkable thing in many ways, especially for uh, kind of pre-modern or beginnings of modern world, these first century Greek and Jewish readers, specifically for the Greek readers, this would have been borderline offensive, if not just completely illogical, because of, in Greek philosophy, a tacit assumption that the physical world was inherently evil. Right? So Greek philosophy at this time was basically dualistic, and they thought, okay, all of the things that are good, these, uh, whether it's the divine or these kind of perfect forms or whatever the case may be, was essentially non-physical, and everything bad is physical, or say it the opposite way, everything physical is bad. Everything physical is broken and evil, and they wouldn't have said sinful, but the Jews would have. Right? And so this idea that the Lagos had actually put on flesh and become a human being and then tabernacled alongside of us would have been offensive, bordering on illogical to his original readers. Now, for us, it's kind of just unremarkable. Right? For a postmodern mind, the idea that God would become man is just kind of not that big a deal. Because it it not only has postmodern thought kind of done away with dualism in many ways, um, it has changed the way in which we think about the divine and the human. It has, in the the morning service, I said smushed them together, but I know that has other connotations that I think uh, distracted some people. So we'll say squeezed together the divine and the physical into kind of one generic kind of overlapping realm. Right? And so um, we will see things and say things or hear things like, well, there is a divine spark in all of us. Right? And so we go out into nature to experience the divine. And so there's almost like a borderline paganistic understanding of the role of the divine and the human So we have kind of both um, lowered the vision of the divine and raised the vision of what the human is to say, well, the divine is not that great. It's really more kind of normal and humans are actually awesome. And so we kind of squeeze that gap that most of human history has experienced. Most of human history would have said, God is great and other and humans are very little and we have over time kind of squeezed that, right? And so now we think about God as more of a guide, more of a divine guide. And so we may see God in characters like Dumbledore or Gandalf or, for those of us Gen Xers, someone more like Rufus from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which I think is an excellent reference point for this, but many of you didn't understand that in the morning service. So I can't recommend watching that movie, not because it's inappropriate, because it's just bad. It's just it's just not good although that there maybe never has been a role better suited for Keanu Reeves than <laughs> Ted Theodore Logan so most of human history, and in fact Christianity has said God or the divine or the supernatural is very big and, and humans are very very low and very small, we have kind of in our, in our culture squeezed those two things together so that uh, this idea of the word becoming flesh is kind of unremarkable or at least like, well, okay, that's one way to think about the relationship of the divine and the human. Now, What's interesting about this is there's a sense in which that postmodern philosophy that the word became flesh is unremarkable that is actually spot on. Now, for for very different reasons, not not because the divine and the human have actually been squeezed together at a a level of actual value and position and, and kind of inherent being, but because the relationship between the divine and the human was always meant to be squeezed together. So this is the the interesting tension of Christianity, that Christianity believes that God could not be bigger, could not be greater, could not be more holy, other. No, No faith or philosophy describes God being bigger or more powerful or more great, and at the very same time describes humanity as being very low and very small and being very insignificant and full of sin and rebellion And at the same time, rather than saying, hey, the gap is very wide and so there ought not to be any relationship like the Greeks would say, nor does Christianity say the gap is very small, therefore there should be relationship, Christianity actually says the gap is huge and from the beginning, God created there to be relationship, which is actually way more interesting and far more remarkable of a vision. Right, because we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and we've got this creator God who makes all things that without him not one thing has been made, as John says, and we see him walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. We see his presence being felt in a very intimate and relational way from the very beginning of the story. So this idea that God would take on flesh is unremarkable in the sense that this is the way God has always been. So John is making this point that there was, there was this kind of gap between the divine and the human. And Jesus closed the gap by taking on flesh. God had tried to communicate himself through creation, through the patriarchs, through miracles, through the law, through the prophets. And time and time and time again, God's people, humans, have turned aside from him. And so God said, fine, I'm going to come to you. So this kind of forced presence of God, I have found actually to be a really successful dating strategy and a very successful parenting strategy right, for my own life. I met my wife at church. Obviously, I'm a pastor. It's where I meet everyone. (laughs) But I saw my wife uh, at church. This was many years ago. And uh, church was over, and uh, we were in the kind of lobby area. And I saw her across the way, and I thought to myself, I want to meet her. And so I noticed that she was talking to a friend of mine, and so I walked across the lobby and said to my friend Vince, hey man, how's it going, good to see you, and then turned my back completely on him and turned to her and made eye contact and said, hi, I'm Justin. (laughs) I I had uh, at no point in in that whole exchange any interest in talking to Vince at all. He was a pawn in my game to meet Emily, and and after I said his name and acknowledged his presence, he ceased to exist to me in any meaningful way, and I honed all of my attention in on her. And it worked. <laughs> She's never taken her eyes off me since. That's not true. But we got married eventually, right? So this, is, this was a very effective dating strategy to kind of, kind of forced presence, right? In a really appropriate way, forced presence, but like also effective. And so uh, that's one. Two is this is also a very effective parenting strategy for me. I have five children, as I've mentioned before, and one of them um, lives in an alternate universe. And I won't say who it is, um, but he or she, uh, uh, is, is kind of constantly, I mean, he's, she, or one of them, is near us, Physically, but mentally is is I don't know uh, somewhere somewhere else. And so, um, even though his body hears the words that I say and the direction that I give, his mind does not, uh, in any meaningful way, hear me. And so, what I have to do in order to get his attention or someone's attention is is I I place my hands on his face. It's always him, his face and. And I look into his eyes and I say, person, (laughs) are you with me? Do you hear me? Do you see me? Please make eye contact with me. And this is the only effective strategy. And it's only marginally effective, but it's the most effective strategy that I have to get his attention and to be able to actually give direction to him successfully. This is basically what God did in Jesus. Is he, he, he spoke to us subtly through creation. He spoke to us less subtly through the patriarchs and the prophets and the Bible, the Torah, all of it. And then finally went, okay, listen, I want to be with my people. I want them to be with me. I want them to know me. I want them to see me. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us and took us by the face and looked us in the eyes and says, it's me. It's me. It's God. Are, are you with me? Do you see me? Do you hear me? There, there were no links to which Jesus would not go to make that connection with us. So we can find joy in our life because we cannot escape the presence of God. That Generations of people attempted to ignore or escape the presence of God and Jesus finally went, okay, I'm gonna grab you by the face and I'm gonna look deeply into your eyes and you are gonna hear my voice and you are gonna see my actions and you are gonna know me and there's nothing you can do to escape it. We cannot escape the presence of God. Number two, verse 16. We're going to skip 15 for two reasons. One, we actually looked at this two weeks ago, and we're going to look at it again in two weeks. So twice is enough. So verse 16, and, and because John's thought process continues in 16, it says, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, he says fullness there at the end of verse 14, go back to 14, so he says, word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, he says, the word became flesh, tabernacled uh, among us, made kind of forced eye contact with us, got our attention, and in the process revealed the glory of God. The fullness of God was revealed through Christ and what we saw was grace and truth. So then from his fullness back to 16, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So in verse 14, John says, listen, um, when Jesus came to this earth, he revealed grace and truth, the twin needs of every human being. The, things, the two things that we need the most, grace and truth. Like we need to understand in, in truth, we need to understand what it is we're here for. And so Jesus revealed, like, why are you here? And what are you for? And why are you breathing? And why do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Why, do you, why are there other people? And why, are there, why is there plants and animals? Why does the world exist? What is your purpose? Why are you still alive? Jesus revealed all that and revealed kind of uh, what I think of as like, kind of like a line to go, okay, go do that. This is what you're for. This is what you're made for. Go in that direction. And he not only taught us what that was, but then he also modeled it for us. Now, without that, without that true line, without that that understanding of what it is we're here for, we are left to wonder. We're left to guess. We're left left to just kind of Hope we understand what we're here for, but without that narrative, without that arc, without that idea of what we're for, we're left to wander. Um, As a a, a young man, again, I mentioned I'm Gen X. I'm like barely Gen X, but I'm like on the line between Gen X and millennial, and of course I'm gonna claim Gen X. And... uh, (laughs) but I grew up with like, early video games and I've never been a big video game person. It's not no judgment, but they're the worst. And so I, the, I think the reason why is because early on, my buddies played The Legend of Zelda. Anybody old enough to have heard of The Legend of Zelda? Thank you, thank you, okay, great. Uh, here's my understanding of The Legend of Zelda, and, and now this is dated now probably 45 years, but... Uh, Uh, I, I, my memory is I stood on, I sat sat on the couch while my friends uh, had a little guy and they just wandered around looking for stuff, but they didn't know what they were looking for. They would see a thing and go, Oh, let's go see if that's a thing. And then it wouldn't be. And then they would go to another thing and try to see if that's a thing. And it wouldn't be. And they would do this for six hours until they eventually accidentally bumped into a guy that turned out to be a thing. And it was like, Oh, cool. All right, six more hours, let's find the next thing. It was just random and pointless, and I lost interest about 15 minutes in. Life without truth is like wandering around in the legend of Zelda. That's my best illustration. (laughs) That's all I got. It is pointless, it is aimless, and we walk around just wondering if what we're doing is even worth anything. If we're even walking in a direction that is fruitful for our lives. When Jesus came, he gave us an aim. He gave us a direction, he gave us a line to walk and says, that's what you're for. That's what I, I made you, and this is what I made you for. Go do that. So we need that, but we also need grace because we will inevitably walk off that line, and do something else, and explore other places, and things, and ideas, and patterns of behavior, and Jesus then gives us grace to orient us back to the line. Now, here's what I need to say about grace. Oftentimes, when I hear people talk about grace, they'll say, well, give me grace when it comes to this, or I I want grace for this, or you owe me grace for this. Often what they mean is, give me a pass on this. Don't hold me accountable to this. But here's the thing. That's not what grace is and it never has been and it never will be. Grace, write this one down, grace always transforms. Grace always transforms. Grace never just affirms. That's is not what grace is. Grace always transforms. And so it is if we are on this line that Jesus is going, that's the direction. That's what you're for. And we start wandering over here. Grace is Jesus going, okay, I love you, so I'm going to orient you back. I'm going to pull you back towards the line so you can go. Grace does not say, oh, you're off on this line. Oh, okay, cool. Pat you on the head. Just keep going. That seems like a fun line. Just go do that. That's not grace. That's something else, but it's not grace. The grace of God always orients us back to the truth of God. 100% of the time. 100% of the time one of the things that you learn about children is they can't be trusted, just in general, but specifically, they can't be trusted when walking down city streets, okay? So most of my children have uh, lived, either been born in or lived in San Francisco or Seattle. And um, we walk down the streets of cities and they're learning how to navigate city streets, but they don't, that's not intuitive for them. And so my youngest is two. We were in, uh, in downtown uh, last night, actually. Uh, and, uh, and he cannot be trusted to just be sat on the street and, or on the sidewalk or street, really, but uh, <laughs> definitely not on the sidewalk. And just, we would never, we like, we would never follow him right? But sometimes we want to let him walk. And so he'll walk most because I'm tired of holding him, but we'll let him walk. And then he'll start to veer out towards the street. And I will very graciously ease him back away from traffic and back onto the sidewalk. This is the grace of dad in his life. (laughs) Right? It orients him back to what is good. I would never just set a kid down, let it walk, and follow the kid. I would never do that. That would be foolish. Actually, that's not true. I have done that just to see what they would do, and I hide uh, and follow them. And one of my kids really went pretty far. Actually, I was impressed. But I was always there. That's the important thing in case you work for CPS. So... <laughs> Grace always transforms. Now, John here says we've received grace upon grace. And and the idea in the language here is it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Layers of grace, grace that never runs out. Not eternal allowance or affirmation, but a never-ending, transforming grace. God never tires of going, come on, come on, come on back. Come on back to what you were made for. Come on back to what I built you for. God never tires of granting grace for us to orient us back to the very purpose for which we were made. Martin Luther describes it this way. He says, the sun is not dimmed and darkened by shining on so many people or by providing the entire world with its light and splendor. The sun retains its light intact. It loses nothing. It is immeasurable, perhaps able to illumine 10 more worlds. I suppose that 100,000 candles can be ignited from one light, and still this light will not lose any of its brilliance. Thus Christ, our Lord, to whom we must flee and of whom we must ask all, is an interminable well, the chief source of all grace. Even if the whole world were to draw from this fountain enough grace and truth to transform all people into angels, still, it would not lose as much as a drop. This fountain constantly overflows with sheer grace. In verse 17, John says, for the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He draws a distinction here, right? In the law, we saw we had truth. God laid out what what he wanted for God's people and how they would live. And certainly there were allowances in the law for forgiveness so that when and if they got off that line, there was things that they could do to, to earn God's forgiveness, but there was not grace in it. There was not transforming grace to turn them back into the kinds of people that God wanted them to be. Only in Christ does that kind of grace exist. Paul picks up this theme in Romans 5. He says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul says, where there is an increase of sin, there is an abundance. There is more than enough grace to cover whatever increase in sin that there is. And I always think of this being at the beach when you dig holes in the sand at the beach to like uh, bury a kid or something. You you dig and you dig and you you reach a certain point at which you kind of hit water, right? You know, and you start to shovel and you think, okay, I'm going to shovel this water out so that the hole is good. But every shovel you reach, kind of more and more water, and it seems like before. you even shovel, the water's already there, because it is, and I always think of grace in that moment, that there is no depth that we can dig in our sin, and therefore there is no depth that we can dig in our repentance that will find a a dry well when it comes to grace. In fact, the, the truth of the matter is, the grace we need is already there. And the only thing that keeps us from seeing it is our unwillingness to repent. That the moment we go there and and say, God, I've sinned in this way, that the grace is already there for us. That our repentance actually reveals the pre-existing grace of Christ for us that not only does he have this well that he's doling out the grace, the grace is there and we just are unwilling or unable or as yet we have not experienced it because we are not willing to repent to that depth. We're afraid. We don't trust that there will be grace at the end of it. And yet Paul commands it. Paul affirms it. Paul guarantees it that where sin abounds, grace abounds, All the more. That if we can just discover more and more and more of our own sin. This is like God incentivizing us to come clean. God incentivizing us to come to him and be near him and say, God, I, I need you and I've sinned in this way because he guarantees us that there will never be an end to his grace. So every time we look for more or deeper, there will always be more grace. I experienced an illustration of this this week. Um, we have uh, a Christmas version of one of those Russian nesting dolls. You, you know those things where it's like a thing inside a thing? And, and our, ours is a Christmas theme. So the first one's like Joseph and then Mary's inside, which is like weird theology. But, um, <laughs> but you open it and, then, and there's more and it gets down to Jesus. And um, the first time we showed my son Will, who's two, it was really super cute. We got it on video, I think, and, uh, or, or it didn't happen. And uh, uh, we, we would take the first one, and he'd go, huh? and see that there was a second one. And we'd take it and open the second one, and he'd go, huh? and then we'd take the third and open the third, and he'd go, huh? right? I'm just going to keep doing this. And, uh, and then, like, the fifth one is, is Jesus, right? So it's just this, like, little baby Jesus. And, uh, and so he goes, baby, right? The baby. I said, oh, it's baby Jesus, right? And so then we put it all together. And now he knows, right? So he's, anytime he sees the doll, he goes, baby, Baby, He knows what's in there. So even now, though, we'll take the, he'll go, baby, baby, and I'll grab the thing and I'll open it up. And he goes, oh, huh? and I grab the second one. And he goes, oh, huh? and I open the third one. And he goes, okay, come on, let's get to the end here, right? And, and, uh, and, and so there, there's, no, like, there's no end to his joy. There's no end to his expression. There's no end to his hope and, and surprise and, and, and gratitude that there is something else underneath it. There's, you know, there's never a point at which he opens it. And he's like, oh, okay, I get it. It's always, oh, there's more. There's more grace to be had. No matter how many times, no matter how deep we go, there is more grace to be had. So we can have joy because no matter what, there's always grace. That's not dependent on what's going on around us. That is forever unchanging grace. Verse 18. John says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him. Known. Now, this is a, a, a kind of a notoriously difficult verse to translate. And so probably every translation has it just a little bit differently. And, and I think that's actually on purpose because um, John is trying to parse out a really hard thing here, which is the Trinity. And so he's trying in, in one sentence to basically say God the Father and God the Son are distinct and yet uh, of the same essential being and nature. And so he's saying, listen, the, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus revealed God, the Father, because he's in God, the side, the bosom, literally the bosom of God. And so it's really kind of hard to translate, but I think that's kind of reflective more of the idea that there is a great complexity in the nature of God, okay? But what's more relevant to us about this passage is what it says. He goes, okay, no one has ever seen God. The only God, the only begotten God who's at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known. He has revealed who God is. Now, I have not applied for many jobs in my life, but I've hired a lot of people. And the, the worst part of hiring a person, or kind of the most awkward part of hiring a person is checking their references, and, and you have to check the references because eventually you'll hire someone and is bad and someone will go, well, did you check the references? And you'll, you'll need to say yes, because if you say no, then it's like, well, you're dumb. But here's the thing, references are dumb. No, there is no real point to having references other than you proving that there are at least three people who won't speak ill of you. <laughs> That's the extent of the value of references, that three people kind of like you, okay? Because no one picks references that are actually going to tell the honest truth and the full truth about you. You pick references that are going to make you look like the kind of person that should be hired. There's a purpose to a reference, and that is getting a job. There is no other purpose to it. So you're going to, you're going to pick people that either only saw you in your best moments or seem like credible human beings who say, yes, I know justice. But what if, what if we were trying to pick a reference to reveal the truth about us? Who would you pick? Who would you pick if you wanted someone to really know you? Who would that be? Spouse, best friend, a parent, sibling. If the goal was not a job, but the goal was kind of full knowledge, who would you pick? God picked Jesus, in a sense. It's tricky, it's Trinity. But in a sense, God picked Jesus to be the full revelation of who he was. And what do we see? Well, we see a lot of things, but first we see a baby in a manger. Jesus revealed a lot of things about God, made a lot of things known about God. And as we kind of march through the Gospel of John, we'll see a lot of those things. But for now, in this season, and at the beginning of the Gospel story, we see Jesus in a manger, in a backwater, nothing town in the Middle East, born to unremarkable parents in unremarkable, unremarkable circumstances. He was basically born in the back of a Buick in a motel parking lot in Piala. For context. Totally unremarkable. Here's why I think that matters. Think of what Jesus didn't have when he came to introduce God to us. Think of what he didn't have. A job, a spouse, a reputation, power, money, position, a camel, a home, Kids, a retirement, investments—yet nothing. He came just as helpless and unhelpful as a baby. I've held five of my own children in my arms as infants, as newborns, and they are all, without exception, uh, unhelpful. They contribute very little for the first long period of time of their lives. So often when we talk about God, when we think about God, we focus on what he has done, what he, what he is doing or what he will do. And, and by all means, like that's, that's great. Like that's central to the gospel, but the beginning of the story contains none of that. In this moment, all we have is Jesus. He's not working miracles. He's not turning breast milk into wine or something like that. Like, he's just there. He's crying. He's eating. He's pooping that weird first week baby poop thing that happens. It's a thing. Just wait. It's pretty much the grossest thing you've ever seen. But the first message of Jesus is that before we need anything from God, we just need God. Stripped of what he can offer, we just need him. I need him. And I, I mean, I need his love and I need his grace and I need his blessing and I need his direction and I need his leadership. I need his, the conviction of the spirit. I, I need all of that. But before any of that, I just need him. And it's interesting to me that the very first revelation of God by Jesus is just Him with nothing else to offer, nothing else to give. Jesus didn't do anything recordable for like 30 years. He didn't come as a king. He didn't come as a prince. He didn't come with any power, any, he came with nothing and then was obscure for 30 years. See, I miss that all the time in my life. I miss the presence of God in my life because I'm looking for the acts of God. I'm looking for the provision of God. And so in the process, I miss God. And in fact, it's not just God. Uh, this kind of thinking has crept into all areas of my life. I can't just enjoy my kids because I can only see what they aren't yet. I can't enjoy my job because there are so many things we haven't accomplished. I can't just enjoy my wife, my money, my stuff, my friends because I'm focused on and unsatisfied with what they can offer me. I can't even enjoy God because of all the things I want from him and at the very same time, all the guilt I feel for that. See, God chose to enter the world in a way that challenges everything I care about. In fact, um, when I was writing out my notes, I was writing this long list of things that Jesus didn't have when he was born. The job, the spouse, the reputation, the money, the position, the camel, the home, the kids' retirement. And I only noticed later that I wrote reputation twice. And it made me think, gosh, do I care about that? Like maybe maybe I care a little bit too much about that but if it's so present in my mind that I'm recognizing twice that Jesus has none of it. God chose to enter the world in a way that challenges everything I care about. So I wonder if our greatest joy during this season might be the realization that all the things we spend our lives pursuing, the things that matter to us so much but bring us so little real pleasure that those things don't really matter. And can at best be sometimes sources of happiness, but never sources of joy. And when you strip all of this stuff away and get down to the things that really matter, the things that never change, guess what we find? We find joy. Because our hearts can be content. When our lives are built around things that don't change, when that's what matters most to us, that's when we will find joy. The presence of Jesus never changes. The constancy of his grace never changes. The sufficiency of life with just him never changes. So those are the things that if we can orient our life, that those can be the foundational things, the things that we look to, that we ask To give us happiness and joy, that we will actually find what we're looking for. But to to the degree that we're asking the people and things around us to provide for us that joy that we seek and need, we will only occasionally find happiness, but we will never find joy. So the ask is simple. God has made a way for us to know joy, to actually experience it, no matter what is going on around us. We can actually obey Paul's command to rejoice in all things when we have centered our lives and our hearts around him. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.